0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brickenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
2: I want to turn our attention to to an issue that's kind of flown below the radar as we've been dealing with a lot of bigger issues, but it's still a very important one. Uh, when it comes to uh, young people and smoking and and vaping. So we've got some uh, new data uh, on on this question. It's something that Stats Canada does track through the uh, Canadian Tobacco and Nicotine Survey. As we look at the numbers from uh, 2019 to 2020, we're seeing some really encouraging trends. Now, smoking rates among teenagers are at historic lows. And smoking rates amongst young adults, 20 to 24, that cohort saw 40% drop from 2019 to 2020. So why are we seeing that? And what, what impact is vaping having? Are we potentially exchanging uh, one problem for another? Well, somebody who's been uh, following all of this very closely joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Ian Irvin is a professor of economics at Concordia University, a research fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute, org. Professor Irvin, thank you for joining us here today. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you very much, Rob. Good to be with you.
2: Yeah, it seems like, you know, I mean, I get those, there's maybe, you know, a lot of big issues going on at the moment in Canada. But this seems like something that we should be really trumpeting something we should be really happy about. These are some really encouraging numbers.
3: Well, the, I agree with you completely. I think it's, uh, it's a very positive thing that we're we're seeing this big decline among uh, people in the age group from 20 to 24 in, uh, in their smoking patterns. It was a big surprise to me when I saw the um, announcement that came from Statistics Canada, and it was based on the Canadian Tobacco and Nicotine Survey, that the smoking rate of this group had really dropped very, very precipitously. Uh, in the space of one year now you can't always be 100% certain that the um the drop that you see uh, represents uh, a completely accurate picture because what you're doing is taking a sample of the population and the sample yep. might be a little bit off but a 40 a 40% drop is a huge drop and even if there was a little bit of error there uh there's probably still a very very big decline taking place so it's a, it's a really good sign i think
2: yeah, it is. So that's uh, that's a 40% drop in the 20 to 24 age group. As mentioned, the 15 to 19 age group, that number is already down to 5%, which, as you point out, is, that was our target for 14 years from now, is we were hoping yeah, to, get it's to even, that. It's
3: level. even less than 5%. You know, it depends on what grade you look at. You know, a few more kids smoke in grade 12, and they're doing, i sorry, vape in grade 12, and they're doing grade 11, and they're doing grade 10. But in uh, you know, if you average all of high school, it's even down below five percent. So it's it's really quite amazing. And as you say, yeah, that's yeah. It, that's the target for the whole population for twenty thirty five. So uh, if these people can age and uh, not take up smoking, then uh, there's a very good chance that a large part of the population by twenty thirty five will have um, will see uh, a smoking rate of no more than five percent. So this yeah. uh, this augurs well for the future.
2: Well, it certainly does. So then it begs the question of, well, how how did we get here? Because, you know, a few years ago, there was concern that, you know, smoking rates had kind of plateaued and and even the concern that vaping could drive those rates back up. and, And that hasn't happened, has it?
3: no it hasn't i mean there uh, there's a group of people who, who fear that vaping vaping rates you know most more kids vaping that ultimately they'll transfer over to cigarettes uh, I'm not one of those people there's not a lot of evidence in the data if you look at the data seriously that people uh, do use actually use vaping as a as a gateway that's the expression they use as a gateway to smoking um, sometimes it, it is indeed the case that a lot that a lot of times um, young people who are smoking have previous Vaped, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the vaping is causing it. They're probably just uh, those individuals are probably just risk takers by their very nature. And if vaping hadn't been hadn't been there, they would have been smoking a lot earlier. So I, I don't see uh, any convincing evidence in the data that vaping is uh, is, a, is a gateway. If anything, if, if vaping were a gateway, you might be expecting these days that. Uh, the people in the 20 to 24 age group would be smoking more because if they started vaping a few years ago and the vaping really were a gateway, that you'd be getting higher smoking rates rather than lower smoking rates. But that's exactly the uh, the opposite of what we're seeing. Now, I don't want to give the impression that vaping is a harmless activity. Uh, nic- nicotine is uh, a very dependence-forming substance. You may even want to call it an an, an addiction-forming substance. The thing, about, the thing about the modern technology of consuming nicotine is that for the most part, uh, the uh, suppliers of nicotine have separated out the toxins, for the most part, not completely, um, that are associated with combustion. What happens when you smoke cigarettes is that you become addicted or you become dependent on account of consuming the nicotine, but it's the combustion that creates all the carcinogens that ultimately kill you. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of people realize that, and there are many fewer toxins in e-cigarettes than there are in combustible cigarettes. And so from the long-term point of view, if more people are vaping, uh, it may indeed be the case that um, too many people are dependent upon the nicotine, but at least they're not consuming the, the toxins to nearly the same degree that their um, parents were consuming them You know, when they, when they were teens or when they were in their 20s.
2: Right and and that's that's the policy dilemma because I think ultimately sure given if we had a choice we would prefer young people just do neither but exactly if if, if vaping is is leading us away from cigarettes even if we're exchanging one problem for another this is in in a lot of respects much less of a problem. So, yeah. what are the implications now,
3: well, for them? Well, we just uh, just um, just be careful of we should be careful of, of how we phrase this. You know, when we say we exchange one problem for another, we're not exchanging one problem for another where each problem is equally serious. Right, one is exactly. infinitely, you know, I, infinitely. I perhaps shouldn't use that word, but hugely less less serious <laughs> than the other. And um, you know, if you if you subscribe to the Harm reduction school of thought, as I do, then you don't go out there and, and seek perfection. What you what you seek to do is to is to make the world a better place. And what what I would really love to see is a, a big drive aimed at, you know, strongly habituated or. Addicted smokers if you want to call them that and say look you can get your nicotine without killing yourself. We really want to see you transition away from smoking to either quitting through You know uh, nicotine replacement therapy or gum or whatever it is but also we should allow those people the, the freedom to choose to transition over to consuming nicotine in a much less toxic form and so I think we could, we could improve the health of Canadians and bring about an enormous reduction in the number of people who are dying from uh, cancer and uh, heart and cardiovascular conditions every year if we could get a lot of the smokers off cigarettes, off combustible products and onto non-combustible nicotine based products. Right. We have about 40,000, depending upon who you ask, about 40,000 people every year in Canada die from smoking related diseases. And so, you know, if we could even get a fraction of smokers, a reasonable fraction of smokers off smoking, off consuming combustible products, we could save an awful lot of deaths on an annual basis.
2: So in terms of the policy implications, uh, you know, I mean, the the federal government provinces are imposing a lot of rules they are going to affect uh, certain flavors uh, of vaping products, uh, nicotine content all of that. So when we look at the big picture, though, of some of these trends, how should that affect government decisions?
3: It's a very difficult question because uh, you know, every, every parent is concerned about their teenage son or daughter and, and no parent wants to see their son or daughter vaping. And it's very easy for people like myself who, uh you know, whose kids are grown up and I have a university position and I say, Yeah, well this is only five percent as dangerous as smoking and you and all your buddies when you parents were kids were all smoking. So your your kids are really not doing too badly at all. So they don't really want to hear that. They know that nicotine is, is, is uh, dependence-wise, and they don't want their kids to be doing that. And so they are interested in pushing the government into measures that will limit um, certain a- attributes of vaping in the hope that their kids won't take it up. So that's all understandable, but you, you, need somebody to, you need some people to stand back and look at the overall picture at the same time and try and balance off you know, what happens when you get some more people vaping and some and fewer people uh, smoking? And and that's the whole um, focal focus of harm reduction. You know, we're, we're, we're not trying to achieve a state of perfection for everybody. We're just trying to to balance different, different things and try to make the outcomes much, much better at the end of the day. So I'm not I'm I am concerned. Um, I mean, exactly where I stand on flavors, uh You know, how many flavors would I permit out there? Can we identify flavors that are mainly attractive to adults who might switch from smoking? Uh, I don't think it's a good thing to be putting a a cap on nicotine content, even though um, the Juul and Views type devices tend to have a lot of nicotine in them. And the reason I'm not in favor of a cap is that if you if you reduce the nicotine content, what'll happen is that most of the users will go to consuming a larger volume of liquid and that liquid will be at a lower concentration, but they'll be consuming much at much greater volume of aerosol. And the volume more volume of aerosol is worse for your health. It's still not comparable in any way with cigarette smoke, but if you increase the volume of the aerosol that you take in, it's really not good for you. And so I don't think it's a very good solution to, uh, to ban the high concentration products, because when you smoke something like, uh, when you smoke something, whether it be from a vape shop or uh, a corner store with a high nicotine content, you're taking in uh, a very low volume of, of aerosol and that keeps the toxin levels down. So again it's a it's a bit of a trade-off um, but I'm I'm not in favor of putting a 20 milligram uh, concentration limit on vaping products and I made a submission to Health Canada as a lot of people did and I tried to argue why it, it wasn't a good idea. I don't know if I'll have any influence or not on the ultimate yeah. outcome. Um, what else can we say? Teenagers in general Don't be down on teens. Um, Teens are taking much fewer risks than their parents took and they're taking much Mm -hmm. fewer risks than my generation of kids. uh, And I'm at retirement age and my generation of kids uh, did. If you look at the statistics that are coming out for risky behaviors from teens, Generally, the risk-taking behaviors have moderated greatly in the last ten or few ten or fifteen years. Uh, they're getting drunk much less frequently. They're binge drinking much less frequently. Mm-hmm. And one of the measures that I really like is the fact that uh, teens are much less willing to get into a car with a driver who has consumed alcohol or who has consumed cannabis. You know, if they need a ride home. So teens, teens are showing. Uh, uh, you know, overall uh, a much higher level of uh, risk aversion um, and they're showing a lot more common sense than, than uh, my generation did, right. <laughs> and so we yeah. we we should not be down on teens. Um, it is the case that they have. It is the case that they are vaping more, and the way I de- the way I de- I have described this a couple of times, and I think I may have used the expression in the article I um, the opinion piece that uh, was posted on the CD Howe Institute this morning is that they have you know t- teams are by n- nature risk takers and um they have what what we what i like to call a sin portfolio right
2: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> you you have a, a stock portfolio they have a sin portfolio <laughs> and so they're they're rearranging their sin portfolio in a much less risky and in a much less dangerous way it doesn't yeah. mean to say that there's no risk <laughs> in their portfolio of behaviors, but it's much the degree of risk is much lower than it used to be. Yeah, so we shouldn't be know. down we shouldn't be down at all on on teens because of uh, you know this supposed uh, epidemic that's out there of vaping that's promulgated by the media all the time. I think that the media is missing an awful lot of good news about teens, and it's really uh, unfortunate that it's not being pushed out there.
2: Indeed. Well, well, we'll push it out there a little bit more. Again, uh, cdhow.org. More from you uh, at the C.D. Uh, Institute website. Professor Irvin, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate uh, it. Nice to talk to you, Rob. Likewise. Take care. All the best. Bye. Ian Irvin is a research fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute, professor of economics at Concordia University. We do have other vaccines coming to Canada. I think... Some of the numbers have been a little frustrating through January and February and March, but uh, things are are looking a lot better on the vaccine front. Uh, So we're getting a lot more Pfizer vaccines and Moderna vaccines. We'll soon have Johnson & Johnson vaccines uh, arriving in Canada, Uh, even Novavax in the mix at some point, potentially. Um, So if we take AstraZeneca out of the mix, we've got some fallbacks. But do we need to take it out of the mix? What do we make of this recommendation from NASI today? What is that going to do to public perception around this vaccine? There's also the question, too, I mean, in terms of global vaccination efforts. This is an inexpensive vaccine. It's easy to store and transport. There's a lot of hope riding on this in terms of getting uh, people in other countries vaccinated. So this could be a, a potential issue going forward. Joining us uh, for some thoughts on uh, what we make of you know, this potential rare side effects, how NACI has decided to address it. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Dr. Craig Jenny, Associate Professor in the Departments of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Dr. Jenny, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Uh, so let me just get your thoughts on kind of where we're at and what this evidence is telling us and uh, what you make of NACI's recommendation here.
4: I think what we're seeing is is an abundance of caution, which is always a good thing. Um, We we are talking about, as you pointed out, uh, an adverse event that's extremely rare. So looking at numbers from the UK and and pretty much the rest of Europe, there's a bit of an outlier in in Norway, but looking, you know, tens of of millions of doses administered across Europe, we're talking about under 50 plotting events. So, so it's very rare, very much the kind of thing that would not be picked up in any phase three clinical trial, unless you are enrolling, you know, tens of millions of people in a in a clinical trial, which just never happens. Right. So, this is you know, learning from the data and, and trying to improve our delivery of vaccines. And if there's anything that can be done to make them more safe, is there is there a group that may be at risk of these adverse events? Let's figure that out and then uh, adjust our vaccine recommendations based on that.
2: Right. And so what NACI is doing here, it, it's not a recommendation that Canada stop using this vaccine altogether. We've adjusted the age recommendation, and, and this is meant to give them you know, more time to, to gather more evidence and maybe come to a different recommendation in a few weeks. So what, what do we make of the decision they've made and what it entails?
4: I think there's two things that can be taken from this one is you're absolutely right this is not a, a recommendation to stop the, the astrazeneca vaccine uh, altogether we've identified that in younger people particularly in women particularly people with lower platelet counts there's a risk of this uh, immune-based Plotting event. And that you know, carries two things. One is if we, if we have a really good idea of who's at risk, we can avoid vaccinating those people with this vaccine. But also if it ever happens, we're looking for it and there are treatments for this event. So, so we can now, you know, be on the alert for it, treat people if there is anything. So I, I would imagine over the next few weeks, we're going to see revisions as to who can receive the vaccine or not. But the other side is just we, we should be actually, um, feeling more confident with the vaccine program here in Canada, that we are continually improving it based on real-time data, uh, you know, material that can never be predicted from any clinical trial and really is only coming to light after tens of millions of doses. And, and you know, I, I think Canadians should feel that the recommendations uh, at any given day are the best available at that time and, and for the safest use of vaccines.
2: Yeah, and that's what seems confusing about this. I mean, we, you know, we're not as far along in Canada, but we haven't seen any of these these adverse events here. Uh, but the United Kingdom, which, you know, we're really learning a lot about this vaccine from from the experience thus far in the United Kingdom, doesn't seem to have been an issue there. But, I mean, at the same time, the, you know, the data we're seeing out of you know, Germany in particular does seem worth paying attention to. How do we reconcile all of that?
4: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the risk will remain very low. But if there's any way to make it more safe than, than it currently is, I think we would be you know, uh, uh, stupid not to, to be brutally honest. So I, I think this is good. I think this is working together with our friends and, and comparable health care systems and learning from each other's data. As you pointed out, we, we've distributed uh, you know, a lot of doses of AstraZeneca here in Canada and have never seen one of these adverse events. So good news. But even if it's only gonna be one or two cases nationwide and we can avoid it, we probably
2: should. So th- this this age recommendation, so it's not recommended for those 55 and under. And I think that that's partly because of what you say, and, and we've seen some of these side effects, rare side effects in, in some younger people. I guess part of it is also an assessment of the, the risk of the virus itself. So what went into coming up with that number?
4: Yeah, so that's based on, you know, the the odds of somebody under 55 who gets infected requiring hospitalization or worse, intensive care unit or perhaps uh, not surviving a a SARS-CoV-2 virus infection. So this is based on that, that balance of risk and benefit. Now, that balance may also shift as these variants become more established because we are seeing increased hospitalizations in younger people and worse outcomes. So as those numbers continue to evolve these extremely rare blood clotting events may be, you know, not worth um, not vaccinating younger people if the risk of of hospitalization is continuing to climb. And as you pointed out, this is also partly balanced with we are getting additional vaccines in. So we have other options. We can use the AstraZeneca vaccine in populations of, of Canadians where this blood clotting risk is not present and use the other vaccines for the other age groups.
2: It's interesting. One of the awkward questions some of this raises is that, you know, these adverse effects have largely been, almost exclusively been, in women. Mm -hmm. How how awkward would that be for NACI to sort of have a, you know, gender-based vaccine recommendation?
4: Yeah, uh, it's something we we never want to deal with. We we obviously want equal access to all uh, medicines, but, you know, there may very well be a sex-based um, uh, risk factor here, and, and we have to consider that, so we do have that for other drugs we, we have drugs that that there's always a question or concern if somebody's pregnant or may become pregnant that that does influence, mm-hmm. for example, some medications. so this would not be unheard of, but it is something that we would like to be able to uh, have very defined criteria rather than simply saying you know all of one sex or gender cannot receive it.
2: Going forward, as you say, we'll probably get some clarification in two or three weeks here. but um there there are a lot of folks out there who have had the first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine and we're expecting it to get the second are mm-hmm. uh, left a little bit in limbo here. what What are our options? And I mean, is does it make sense to to give a different vaccine as the second dose for somebody?
4: So actually, there are clinical trials underway right now, and that, mixing, first and second dose and that was not because of this this blood clotting event. This was an immune strategy where where we do know that sometimes changing between the prime and the boost actually enhances the immune response. We get a broader, longer lasting memory. So that was currently being explored in the UK that may become an option for these patients. Mm -hmm. We know that the people have already received the vaccine, the only real risk is four days to maybe two weeks after vaccination, so if they've had their shot longer than that, then there's no longer risk to them. And we are anticipating this pause by NASI only to be a few weeks before we have clarity on who can receive the shots in the future. So most people will be in this several weeks to a few months between Prime and Boost. Uh, So we will probably have an answer before they are ready for their booster shot. So I think right now there's no need to panic, no need to worry, that we do have a, a good time window to go through the data and make sure we're providing the best guidelines possible um, when we look at the, the larger pool of numbers from the UK and Europe.
2: All right, well, we'll leave there for now. Dr. Jenny, appreciate the insight. Thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon.
4: No problem. Take care,
2: Rob. All right, you as well. Dr. Greg Jenny. Uh, the University of Calgary Associate uh, Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases, becoming School of Medicine uh, at the U of C. So some interesting insight from him on just kind of what's at play here, what the concerns are, and what the next steps are. So again, the good news is this seems to be a really rare kind of uh, side effect. And, you know, between knowing ahead of time who could potentially be more at risk for that, and after the fact, what to watch for and how to treat it—that's going to go a long way in in helping to make it even more rare than it already is. But I do wonder if, kind of, big picture here, uh, that that some of the damage is done. And and I've been hearing from some people on the text line and email who are saying, "Yeah, I don't, I don't want that one. If there are other options, I'll take one of the others." And I, I mean, I get that, right? So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how this is all going to play out going forward, not just for Canada, but for other countries as well. What's really going to be interesting is what ends up happening in the United States. The the reason why the United States had, uh, you know, million and a half uh, vaccines to quote unquote loan us is because they're actually sitting on tens of millions of AstraZeneca vaccines. And the thinking was that once it's approved, then bam, you know, you've got millions and millions to, to roll out really quickly. But now the U.S. is facing a dilemma here. When is it going to be approved? Is it going to be approved? What are they going to do with all of these vaccines and, and just the awkward optics end of the U.S. Uh, potentially unloading a bunch of vaccines that they don't want to use? So that, that's, that's not a good situation. But again, I, you know, I think we, we have the situation in the U.K. To, to look at and to learn from, and by all accounts, this has gone really, really well there uh, in terms of efficacy, in terms of safety. Anyway, 4039748255. Let's get back to the phones here. This is Eric. Eric, welcome to the program.:
1: Thanks, Rob. Um, I think the correlation between the um, advice not to give the vaccine to those under the age of 55 is because that seemed to be the age above 55, especially women in the very, very, very rare cases of this blood clotting that is occurring. Okay, Now, to me, that seems kind of silly because when you look at people that... um, you know, using that age as a guideline, saying well, under fifty-five aren't going to get them. I, I don't think there really is an issue at all with the blood clotting. I'll be honest. I think that if you look at twenty-seven thousand people have died in Canada uh, with while infected with COVID nineteen, um, the, the 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 vaccine and getting it out there to me is far more efficacious than than all the panic that has been created by this. And I think that this advisory panel. I question their purpose and I think that if anything, you know, they've got that that idea that, you know, they're going to stop the next thalidomide event or something like that. I I think it's really stupid and I think history is going to look back at this um, as a mistake. You know, I, I right now in respiratory care have got staff members in their 20s who don't want to get the vaccine. Can you believe that? Mm-hmm. They don't yeah. want to get the vaccine. And that's really, really troubling. And I can only imagine that with this sort of news and the sort of coverage that is going on, especially by the CBC, which to me seems to be slanted in an almost anti-vaccine or, or ultra-cautious type of reporting is, is detrimental. I was watching CTV last night. I don't know if you watched it. I, I noticed Lisa Laflamme certainly went out of her way to, you know, try and, and, and espouse the the need for vaccines and that they are safe, as did, you know, Dr. Shikawi and all of the other people that were talking. So I think this, 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 this committee that they've got, frankly, should be disbanded and we should rely on the doctors and the scientists that they have uh, at Health Canada for our messaging. This was a mistake.
2: All right, Eric, appreciate the phone call. Again, I'll be curious to see what they come back with in a few weeks. And th- there is the potential then. I, I, look, I think ultimately people want to know that, you know, we're, we're watching for any potential negative outcomes here. We're watching for any potential rare side effects. And when they arise, we're going to do something about it. I think if done well, that can actually build confidence in, in vaccines. But that's a tricky balance. I, I think, as Eric points out, there is the risk here of you know having the opposite effect, but if if Nancy is able to to do a thorough job and and come back with some pretty sound recommendations based on good evidence, that I think you know th- there's there's maybe a positive that could still come from all of this. So it yeah look I mean in fairness to, to NASI, this it's it's a difficult job that they're being asked to do to factor all of this in and come up with recommendations that strike the right balance. You know, vaccines are a way out of this. Let's not lose sight of that. And I think that's why they've made this recommendation, in part because, you know, the recognition that certainly for some age groups, the risk of dying from COVID is way, way higher than, than any potential rare side effect. But off the top in this hour, I want to talk about one interesting aspect of the Canadian economy, and that is the housing market. I mean, ideally, you want a strong housing market, and maybe that is reflective of a, a strong economy. There was a story today or this week: uh, the Canadian consumer confidence uh, rose to a new record as vaccine rollouts accelerate across the country and the nation's housing market booms. This is in the Bloomberg Nanos Canadian Confidence Index. But what happens when housing markets get overheated and how concerned should we be about that that certainly seems to be the case uh, at least in regards to a couple of housing markets the canada mortgage and housing corporation and its quarterly risk assessment for march uh, looking at where there's some vulnerabilities so we've got you know vancouver toronto those kinds of markets where there is some some vulnerability in particular in toronto they say Now, what's happening in Toronto and Vancouver is not necessarily representative of what's happening in cities across the country. So it's a delicate balance when it comes to a federal response and policies that are aimed at either boosting or cooling the housing market. But is there some urgency to this? There's a report out uh, this week from uh, BMO Capital Markets uh, that warns of severe consequences if this is left unchecked. And the policymakers need to take some action to deal with this. So joining us to talk a bit more about what these risks are, what kind of a response is necessary, and what happens if we just let this keep going as it is. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Robert Kavsik. He's a director and senior economist with BMO Capital Markets, BMO.com. Robert, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
5: Great. Thanks for having me on.
2: So when we look at you know the housing market in Canada and and you know as I say there's that balance between okay a strong housing market is is in some ways a good thing but you know vulnerability overheated markets that that can become a big big problem so where are we at right now?
5: Um, well, the, the market's on fire. Uh, that, I mean, pretty pretty simple as that, um, mm. and and across most of the country. Um, so in in I mean you mentioned Toronto, Vancouver. Montreal, some of the bigger markets here, we've seen prices um, step up about, you know, 30, 40 percent annualized over the last six months. Um, and the momentum, the concerning part is that the momentum is actually getting stronger. It's not softening as we kind of as we as we wind down the pandemic, the momentum is actually getting stronger. Um, so we, we kind of get the sense that the market's feeding on itself a little bit in the sense that um Rather than just incomes and interest rates and demographic demand driving the market now, this kind of price growth suggests that maybe there's something more going on and that, that speculative activity and this whole fear of missing out is actually uh, uh, pushing prices up more than they otherwise should be. Uh, it's a little bit softer in, in, in obviously, Alberta, where the market was, was going through a five-year period of weakness, but even that market has has turned around very, very quickly.
2: Well, and, and talk a bit more about why this is happening because it does almost at some level seem counterintuitive. Because otherwise, and, and you look at over the last year, we've had this tremendous economic downturn. Why are we seeing housing prices, uh, you know, accelerating like this?
1: Well, it's, it's a long story,
5: but um, <laughs> to, to kind of to try and put it succinctly, when you, you mentioned the downturn, the reality is that the the, the vast majority of the downturn was in. Uh, was in lower-paying service-type industries within Canada. If you look at, say, for example, the five or six highest-paying industries in Canada, employment already recovered all of the pandemic losses at some point last year in 2020. So that's where you see more of the uh, home-buying demand. Um, That's come back extremely strong. We've put record-low mortgage rates on top of that, plus fiscal stimulus. And I think what's happening, too, is that you have a big demographic wave in Canada called the millennials and a lot of that group has actually pulled forward purchases uh, that they were maybe planning on making a few years down the road but the pandemic kind of gave them this opportunity to pull those purchases forward and say look we're going to get out of the big cities we're going to buy a single detached home Um, we were going to do it anyway now is probably a good time to do it. Problem is everybody's doing it at once um, at a time when there's not a whole lot of supply out there so uh, hence why prices have kind of have gone off the rails to the upside a little bit.
2: So in terms of this sort of correcting itself, right, I mean, the idea that maybe we, we don't need to intervene here. What what are the risks, as, as you see
5: it? Uh, so, yeah, the risk is that the market just just kind of feeds on itself and it breeds a lot more speculative activity, which is, at the end of the day, something that we would have to pay back. Um, mm-hmm. If prices run in excess of what, what incomes and employment and demographics can support, then at some point we have to pay that back. And the risk is that, um, you know, the last cohort of people into that market end up with negative equity on the other side of this, and they get kind of trapped or they have to take losses, and it has bigger implications for for economic activity and mobility and, and those type, types of things. And I say this as somebody who has, you know, spent it seems like 10 years hearing this story about a Canadian housing bubble all the time and saying that you know it's just not the case we have very strong economic demographic and and housing market fundamentals in Canada and I still think that's the case today it's just when you see prices leveling up 30 or 40 percent over a very short period of time um, you look at that and say well you know if this is not checked and if this is allowed to run for another year then, then obviously there's going to be some payback on the other end.
2: So I guess the question is, what, what could be done? What could be done to, to cool these markets? And should we worry about the, the impact of those kinds of policies on, on softer markets?
5: So the simplest thing I would say is, uh, is, is interest rates. And this, the, the fact that we are um, seeing the economy recover very quickly, but we're still sitting with record low mortgage rates, or near-record low mortgage rates. And maybe even more importantly, the promise from the central bank that interest rates are not going to be moving for a couple of years, uh, it's kind of feeding the expectations in the housing market. So that's the simplest thing. Uh, I would say that's probably the biggest driver of what's going on. The problem is that it's a very blunt instrument. So if the bank is going to actually come out and raise rates or change its guidance, it's not just going to impact housing, it's going to impact a lot of other areas of the economy. Um, And then beyond that, um you know we have a, a strange way of buying houses in canada where we have effectively a blind auction and when you have a very strong market with five or ten or even more offers on a single property and nobody knows the bid of the other prices of the other offers around them that pushes up prices higher than they otherwise would be and so i think i mean that's something that should easily be addressed um and then beyond that it it, it comes down to you know so some kind of tax policy to to maybe try and weed out speculation and I'm not talking about things like a principal residence exemption or or longer term capital gains, but something shorter term in nature that maybe says okay, um, check the speculation here because um, uh, prices aren't necessarily going to rise something that breaks the psychology a little bit. <laughs>
2: I mean, it's this. How much of this is straight supply and demand? Because I think, as you're saying, a lot of this is kind of market distortion, maybe. But you know, is is this an issue that could be addressed through through greater supply in some of these overheated markets?
5: Uh, it, it can, and, and and honestly, we've been we've been pointing to this for like ten years now, so this is not new. Uh, the problem is supply is very slow to respond, so um, it's not something that can help right now or in the next six months or even in the next two years and the reality is that um, development policy in a market like Toronto has been very prohibitive in terms of bringing single detached supply to the market just so happens that the demographic curve that we have right now is 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 demanding exactly that single detached supply so um there, there you're right it is price always is usually it always is a reflection of supply and demand so the market is telling us that we do have an imbalance it just it gets it gets overheated and exaggerated at times when you're throwing on record mortgage rates and 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 very aggressive fiscal policy so supply is a long-term uh issue that we definitely need to keep in mind going forward and i mean it, it's it's not a new story that's that's the only thing
2: yeah, well, okay, I mean, we we got a federal budget coming up uh, in a few weeks, you know, so, it, I mean, it's possible we could see some some changes along these lines that, I, you know, I think you alluded to. The government's really reluctant to be seen to be doing anything that, that might be counter to the idea of, you know, unleashing economic recovery. So, I mean, how likely is it that we're going to see some action and what kind of a timeline are we on here? What sort of urgency does there need to be?
5: Uh, I would say the urgency is is... Is now like it, it we were, we're seeing prices explode in front of us and, and if there's not a response in interest rates which would cool it down pretty quickly um, and I don't know if I don't know if the federal government has the luxury of sitting around and saying well let's see how this plays out for another year um, because it's happening in front of us so I, I don't know what the response is going to be um, we, we've seen over the last you know 10 15 years uh, various tweaks to mortgage rules to tighten up lending standards and that's all been it's all been actually. It, it's been very effective, and it's it's insulated the financial system. But a lot of tweaks to mortgage lending don't necessarily break the psychology of the market like we need today. Um, so, I mean, I'm not I'm not predicting anything major in the budget um, in in early April. But I mean, I, I, I I'm, I'm 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 quite sure policymakers in Ottawa are sitting there and watching it and saying something needs to be done. I just I just don't know what exactly. What, what lever they're going to pull at this particular time.
2: Well, yeah, it's an interesting issue, an important one at that. So we'll see what happens going forward here. Robert, appreciate you making some time for us uh, here today. I appreciate your input on this.
5: Yeah, great. Thanks for having me.
2: Yep, thanks again. Robert uh, Kapsuk, Director and Senior Economist with BMO Capital Markets, BMO.com. So, yeah, you know, he's sounding the alarm a little bit that what they're seeing in a particular places like Toronto is worrisome. And nobody wants to see a housing bubble situation here. Maybe people have kind of been conditioned to, to be cynical of that, because we've been hearing those warnings ever since the U.S. housing bubble burst. We're going to get a budget, a federal budget coming on April 19th. That's going to be the first federal budget in two years. And it comes, obviously, at a real pivotal moment for Canada. You know, certainly we got a ways to go yet. But, you know, there's a lot of hope on the horizon in terms of really coming out of this pandemic and and the economic recovery that's going to come along with that. Now, how much of that is just going to happen on its own, right? If we could snap our fingers and tomorrow, you know, this virus went away, all health restrictions went away, how quickly would the economy rebound? How much pent up demand is there? And are we just waiting to unleash that? Or is the economy still in need of a bit of a, a push here? Does there need to be, at least for now, still some emphasis on stimulus spending to really crank up that uh, economic recovery? And so that's a question, obviously, the government's going to have to decide. But joining us uh, for some thoughts on where we're at and what kind of response might be needed still in the short term, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, Craig Alexander, who's uh, Chief Economist and Executive Advisor with uh, Deloitte Canada. Deloitte.com is the website. Craig, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure, Rob.
2: So, as we look to the uh, priorities in the upcoming budget, and specifically as it pertains to you know really kickstarting an economic recovery, where where do you see the priorities lie for the government?
0: Well, I think your opening remarks capture the the the, the, the challenge, right? So, in the near term, you know we're still <clears throat> we're still in the pandemic. Uh, in fact, um, you know after the first lockdown, followed by rebound in activity. Uh, we then went into um, renewed government restrictions at the end of last year, that caused the economic recovery to lose momentum. Now, the good news is it doesn't look like the Canadian economy went back into contraction in response to the the second wave and and renewed restrictions. Uh, but the pace of growth really certainly the pace of recovery certainly lost momentum. And and as we as we look at the health statistics that are coming in. We can see that there are, there are concerns about the third wave. There is the possibility that you know we 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 aren't out of out of uh, renewed government restrictions, and so there's near term economic risks. But just as you said, that you know there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and that is vaccination. That ultimately, as we get the population vaccinated, the health risks will diminish, and and that should set us up for for an economic recovery. But I think from the point of view of The upcoming federal budget it it has it's it's likely to acknowledge that we're still in the midst of of the crisis and even Mm -hmm. with the recovery we're getting this year there's still a lot of slack in the economy the other dimension here is i think that that provinces um have been very hard hit and fiscally don't have the same sort of fiscal capacity as the federal government on and so you know i think that there 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 is an argument here that the the federal government needs to to provide the the stimulus that in many cases the provinces can't can't afford, and so in the the economic the the fall economic statement the government basically outlined to us that they would be delivering you know additional seventy to one hundred billion dollars of stimulus over the next three years. Um, with the news of vaccination, some people started to question whether or not that was needed. I, I suspect the answer is regardless of of how you feel about it ultimately the government is probably going to deliver what they've already signaled they're intending to do so i would expect another 70 to 100 billion dollars of stimulus
2: uh, so e- even looking at that number i mean that that can entail a lot of different policy responses obviously that that mm-hmm. entails perhaps some response from the bank of canada too so in your view what what kind of stimulus is is necessary
0: so the the seventy to one hundred billion wouldn't wouldn't include what the Bank of Canada is doing, but but obviously what the Bank of Canada is doing uh, helps to um, supplement or, or or work. You know, it means that the government needs to do less than it otherwise would if if the Bank of Canada wasn't providing a lot of monetary stimulus. Um, but I think I think in terms of where where the priorities lie. I think that because we know there's a light at the end of the tunnel, we could, we, you know, we should basically be very strategic about it. So, number one, obviously, we're in a, we're in a health crisis. So if, if, if provinces need, you know, need additional financial support to address the, the health risks or there's spending that's required for the federal government to get the vaccines or accelerate the, the process of vaccination, like, obviously, that's job number one. So, you know, and then after you think about the health concerns, what I really don't want to see is I really don't want to see the federal government spending money for the sake of spending money just to, you know, increase growth this year. I think that Mm -hmm. that as you outlined, you know, at the start that we are going to get out of this, we are going to see a recovery. I think as the health risks diminish, you're going to see consumers outspending more. I think, you know, I think. People saved money because they couldn't go to movies and they couldn't eat out at restaurants and they couldn't take their family on, on extended trips. And I think that, that when the health risks have diminished, I fully expect the consumer to be well engaged in, in, in helping drive the recovery. Where I'm worried is I'm worried about business competitiveness. I'm worried that businesses in, in, in 2020 cut investment by more than 11%. And the latest investment intention survey says they're only going to invest, you know, invest more by about 5% this year. And so that that reduces the, the capacity for the the business sector to respond to rising demand, uh, you know, not just in Canada, but also uh, from our major trading partners. So I think that when, you know, where the government spends that additional funding beyond healthcare, care, what I would like to see is I would like to see it go into Areas where we have a, 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 an infrastructure gap in Canada, like where public infrastructure is weak to help uh, accommodate and fuel more Canadian business activity. I'd like to see the government invest in areas that would, you know, provide incentives for businesses to, to invest more. I'd like to see uh, efforts that would complement things like, you know, things, you know, there's some elements that aren't going to show up in the budget, but I really think are public policy priorities, like getting rid of internal trade barriers. Right. The yeah. fact that it's it, in some cases it's actually easier for us to trade with other countries than trade across our provinces makes no sense right and I think that we're, we've, we've lost a lot of businesses here, particularly small businesses, we're going to want to encourage startups. so again, this is the sort of thing where if the government wants to invest some additional funding in terms of helping facilitate uh, business startups, you know, this would be something that would be constructive to, to helping to helping the recovery. So, you know, what I, you know, so the bottom line here is I think that the government needs to focus on areas that will deliver a long-term payoff to the economy, not just a boost to 2021.
2: Well, and and given that, I mean you know how how temporary then should some of this be because i think by definition stimulus spending is is intended to be temporary and it's not meant to be permanent new government uh, programs for example and i suspect we're probably going to see some some spending that would fall into that latter category but i mean what kind of a timeline do you, do you see this on well
0: it, it it all depends on you know in terms of of being temporary right so there's there's two different dimensions right so Let's say that um, governments haven't been investing enough in public infrastructure that that helps facilitate business activity. okay well that that sort of those sort of in, in infrastructure projects, those big capital projects are temporary because once you once you you know once you start up the project, you break ground, you put in place the additional uh, capacity or the additional capital then the program ends when the project is completed. And so it is It is. It is temporary, even though we could be talking, you know, the infrastructure projects could take a few years for them to, to fully, you know, to be completed. Um, there's other areas where you could see investment that would have a long-term return, like a very significant long-term return. Um, but is, you know, you might, you know, many Canadians would actually think of it more as being, Sort of permanent spending, but because it raises government future government revenues, uh, it actually more than pays for itself. And so, a good example of this is investments in early learning and childcare. Like one of the things that we saw during the pandemic was that you know when when schools were closed, it became very clear just how critical childcare is as a economic uh, as an economic infrastructure, like as an economic uh, support. And if we take a look at the the example of Quebec when they introduced their subsidized child care program um, over you know after ten years the fiscal the, the the fiscal benefit of that program exceeded the cost so on a net basis the federal and you know federal additional federal and provincial revenues that were created by having more women in the workplace by having um, parents that are more productive in the workplace and being less uh, you know it, it, being able to contribute more, you know, ultimately the fiscal payoffs ended up being greater than the cost. So the, the, that's the sort of thing we're talking about here. Where if you know if it's if it's spending money to build park gazebos, that would boost the economy in 2021, but not actually create a long-term economic benefit. But there are there are areas where the government can invest, uh, both in in terms of physical infrastructure and in terms of social infrastructure that ultimately lead to, you know, increased employment, increased income growth, which generates more tax revenues and offsets the cost. But that, that, that offset might take, you know, a few years to materialize.
2: All right. It's going to be an interesting budget day, April 19th. As mentioned, more at uh, Deloitte.com. Greg, appreciate your insight on all this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon.
0: Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: All right. Cheers. Greg Alexander, chief economist uh, with Deloitte Canada, and uh, his thoughts on uh, what he'd like to see from government in terms of really trying to, to facilitate some economic recovery. What are we actually expecting to see in this budget? Uh, I got a text from Jim who says uh, this government's going to spend money like a drunken sailor uh, because they want to get reelected. Look, the, the political dynamic cannot be overlooked here. So not only are we headed into a, an economic recovery, we're likely headed into a, a federal election, either in the summer or the fall. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.